Friday soulmates. We finally made it back to Friday. Casual sure Friday. I got on my I got on my pants. You can't see, but casual Friday. I'm unbuttoned. Yeah. Looking good. <laughs> you see that, Aaron, producer? You see that? <laughs> Welcome to it. Uh, thanks so much for uh, allowing us to be a part of the conversation for today. Welcome to Fox Souls Black Report. Uh, we're going to follow the latest with the Shanquilla Robinson investigation and the Georgia coach accused of misconduct, uh, misconduct that is, with high school students. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm the Cordelia Corte, plus the very important partnership Fantasia has with the American Red Cross and Jake Paul's confrontation with Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather, rather. Mm -hmm. They're the stories that impact our people. We got you when it comes to our news, our views, and our voice. So let's get into the top conversation for today. Everybody's probably by now heard about this apology letter claiming to be from the Mexican drug cartel suspected of abducting four Americans and killing two of them. The Scorpions faction of the Gulf cartel apologized to locals and families of the four Americans. They say the events went against the cartel's rules, which include respecting the life of the innocent. They also say the members involved were turned over to authorities, but as you can probably see on social media comments, uh, that uh, there's doubt the letter is actually from the cartel. This is still a pretty hot conversation across social media and in the news. Yeah, I mean, it's unclear whether or not the letter is authentic or not. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we heard from some sources that investigators believe that the letter is authentic. Um, you know, but uh, the Mexican and U.S. law enforcement, they're not sure how sincere the letter is. I know I've never heard of a drug cartel sending an apology letter. Right. Uh, you know, that seems really unusual to me, the type of stuff that you mm -hmm. you, you see in the movies, mm -hmm. uh, but you don't really see reported in real life. There is a still pic of the perpetrators kind of lined up, sitting down with their hands behind their back, mm -hmm. and they have these look on their faces like, yeah, this is what we sort of kind of been told to do this is how we've been positioned to sort of kind of play into this apology it did not feel sincere or authentic to me I'm hoping that you know our US forces can continue to um, you know uncover uh, what has truly happened who is truly responsible that these families who we now have become familiar with across social media and news reports um, can get justice um, it's just a bizarre story uh, across the board uh, and uh, but it's very unfortunate and very sad and we have to remember, even through all the yeah, talk and rhetoric yeah. and conspiracies, that these family members are suffering. And the thing that seems really um, interesting to me is that, that the cartels seem to govern themselves by like a code of conduct, mm -hmm. right? You know, who, who would have thought that, mm -hmm. you know, the drug cartels have codes of conduct? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it shouldn't be all that surprising because there are, there are American gangs that also have a code of conduct as mm -hmm. well. And so, um, you know, it's going to be interesting as the story uh, continues to develop. Um, learning more about how these drug cartels uh, operate. Uh, it's been long reported that these Mexican drug cartels can be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, This is real. This is not the movies. You're right. This, this is real. Far from it. Far That's from right. it. Prominent civil rights activists are urging President Joe Biden to intervene in the case of Shinkula Robinson, mm -hmm. the 25-year-old who died under suspicious circumstances while on vacation in Cabo, Mexico with six companions. Now, Robinson's family has retained two renowned civil rights lawyers who called on U.S. officials to extradite the person named on an arrest warrant issued by Mexican officials or take over jurisdiction and prosecute the person in the U.S. Let's take a look. Mexican authorities confirmed that they have completed their investigation. We've had the opportunity to review some of the packet 
and it has been sent. The ball is clearly in the United States court. The State Department, the Department of Justice, the ball is in your court. Yeah, let's hope something gets done. Joining us now is civil rights attorney Sue Ann Robinson to discuss how she and attorney Ben Crumb are pursuing justice for Shanquilla Robinson and her family. Welcome back to the Black Report, Sue Ann. Appreciate you taking out some time for us today. Of course, anytime. So, Sue Ann, can you talk to us about what happened at the press conference in D.C. last week? And, and have you heard anything uh, from the Biden administration since? We were calling for a high level of diplomatic immunity. This is a transnational criminal case involving two different countries, two different criminal justice systems. And while our clients respect that and understand that, it's also been a very, very long time and nothing is being done by U.S. government officials to intervene on behalf of Shanquilla Robinson in this case. I did have the opportunity to go to Mexico on behalf of the family on a fact-finding mission to get answers because they weren't getting any answers stateside. They were just being ping-ponged. U.S. authorities were saying, oh, you have to go to Mexico. And then we were calling Mexico and they were saying, no, it's the U.S. authorities. So they took it upon themselves to say, you know what, Sue Ann, we trust you as our advocate to be our boots on the ground and be our eyes on the ground. And then once I was there in the places where Shankula was last, uh, we went to the police station, we went to the attorney general's office, the medical examiner's office. We were able to confirm some things, which include that the Mexican authorities have completed their investigation and turned it over to um, U.S. authorities, the FBI and Interpol, which is protocol in um, an extradition case. They have to turn over their investigative packet and then the State Department the, diplomat, the dip, diplomatic authority in the U.S. has to step in um, to either extradite or take jurisdiction or ask for concurrent jurisdiction, which is what the U.S. did in the case um, of the uh, U.S. citizens that were kidnapped. They swiftly got concurrent jurisdiction with Mexico. The FBI was able to put out a reward of $50,000 for anybody who gave information. But that was a, that case obviously is different substantively from Shanquilla's case where she was murdered, but it is it does show that the U.S. law enforcement agencies can get concurrent jurisdiction with Medi Mexican mm -hmm. law enforcement agencies swiftly. It can be done quickly. And that's really what we need in this case. Yeah, so I, I feel like extradition um, efforts have kind of fallen silent when this uh, case uh, started to kind of uh, open up. Uh, I remember reading reports that maybe one of those suspects was on their way to being extradited back to Mexico. Um, is there a specific status of of that extradition or or any of them uh, as far as who would be considered suspects that's that you know of is happening you know as we speak the issue is for extradition to be done the protocol under the treaty is that Mexico is required to complete an investigation mm -hmm. and then turn over their investigative documents mm -hmm. the normal type of extradition that we're used to is if somebody from Mexico fled did a crime in Mexico and then fled to the United States or somebody robs a bank in the United States right. and flees to Mexico, then it's somewhat easier and more traditional extradition to be sending someone back to their home country. Mm -hmm. But in this case, 
the extradition is going to require U.S. authorities to hand over U.S. citizens to Mexican authorities. Mm. And although it's not, it is unusual, there is still a protocol for that, or U.S. authorities can do exactly what they did in the kidnapping case, which is request concurrent jurisdiction with Mexican authorities and effectuate their own investigation of the case. Uh, you know, you and several other civil rights attorneys, including Ben Crump, are preparing documents on behalf of the family. Can you tell us the purpose of these documents? How are you all uh, looking to use these documents to bring about justice? Well, myself and Ben Crump have authored a letter to President Biden and the Secretary of State. Essentially, the letter is calling for a high level of diplomatic and intervention, explaining the purposes of the purpose of us visiting DC, explaining the things that we spoke about in the press conference in detail so that there isn't later any room for the administration to say they were unaware of the case, they were unaware that their intervention was needed, requested, and we're also going to include the um, documents that we received from Mexican authorities. So even though our position is that they should already have these documents, we're, we're, we're making sure that there's no room for the U.S. administration to say they're not prepared to deal or handle with this. The issue really to me is, you know, at the end of the day, when there's press briefings daily, Shanquilla Robinson's name should be brought up every single day in a press briefing mm -hmm. because she is a U.S. citizen that was murdered abroad. So there, she shouldn't be receiving any different treatment than any other U.S. citizen that was murdered abroad. So I think that the administration is failing her also in that way. But we're focusing on going directly to the highest authority that we can and saying this diplomatic intervention is necessary and it's necessary now. And our press conference in D.C. is just the family is asking for the public and people who are supporters of their family to do the same, to contact the State Department, to contact their representatives and say, why isn't the U.S. intervening in this case on behalf of Shanquilla Robinson? Why isn't it being prioritized? It needs to be prioritized. Yeah, we have about a, a minute left, but before you know, we, we uh, wrap up our time with you today, let's tap into uh, Breonna Taylor's um, case, which of course sparked a DOJ investigation into the Louisville Police Department. Uh, can we get your thoughts on the report that Attorney General Garland Merrick uh, just released? Uh, any, any thoughts on that or any, any um, thoughts surrounding this particular case that's still trying to be brought to justice as well? Right. I, the um, attorney general's DOJ report basically found that um, police, the policing in Louisville is discriminatory towards black people. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, first, first reading it, well, water is wet. That's why there were so many demonstrations. <laughs> That's what the people have been saying. That's what we've been saying. Mm -hmm. So it's great that we have these reports. But the real question is what is next? Are we gonna pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? Is something actually going to be done mm -hmm. as opposed to just continuously gaslighting uh, black Americans, minority communities saying you're being discriminated against and you're being abused by modern day policing? We know that they've done the similar reports in Ferguson, similar reports in Baltimore. So now the next question is what is going to be done? Our thanks to civil rights attorney, Sue Ann Robinson. Thank you for joining us. Yes. And we really look forward to having you back on for more updates as you continue to pursue justice for Shanquilla Robinson. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Indeed. Uh, you know, with uh, Sue Ann Robinson on the case, partnered with uh, Ben Crump mm -hmm. and, and that whole unit of folks uh, pushing uh, for more to be done in this case, uh, my hope is that, uh, you know, the U.S. will continue to do their part in making sure that that family has justice. It's been, it's been too long already. That's right. You know, very long and, and very unusual circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. uh, we know that there's an FBI investigation that is currently happening now. Right, right. Uh, but clearly, according to Sue Ann Robinson and Ben Crump and, and others, um, it doesn't feel like the government is doing nearly enough mm -hmm. uh, to support the family of Shinkula Robinson. All right, we're going to move on here to New Jersey as Senator Cory Booker, one of our favorites, introduced a package of bills to improve working conditions for incarcerated people. Now, he believes the bills will address inhumane prison labor conditions and unfair labor policies in U.S. prisons. Booker's proposals would also protect incarcerated individuals' civil rights, prevent them from being victims of discriminatory practices and ensure they are paid a livable wage. They have support from organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union and National Employment Law Project. Yeah, this is a big deal. This could be life-changing legislation for folks that are incarcerated. And, you know, we want to remind folks that, you know, they're not just, you know, these random people. These are members of our family, members mm -hmm. of our community that are incarcerated. We've heard people, you know, say very often that, you know, inside the prisons, um, you know, it's a very, uh, it can be a very violent mm -hmm. uh, experience for folks. And so uh, what's so interesting about what Cory Booker's doing is that um, this legislation would ensure that incarcerated individuals are deemed employees and would require that correctional facilities routinely report workplace safety and labor conditions. That's a pretty creative way to go mm -hmm. about creating the kinds of reforms that folks have been uh, pushing for for decades uh, inside our, our prisons across America. And so, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we, we talk about criminal justice reform, we talk a good game, uh, but uh, Cory Booker uh, is, is, you know, putting his legislation where his mouth is. Indeed. Uh, from New Jersey to Texas, where a Texas judge has delayed the execution of death row inmate Andre Thomas, whose attorneys say that he gouged out both of his eyes due oh to severe goodness. mental illness. Yikes. Thomas was said to be executed on April 5th for fatally stabbing his estranged wife and two young children, but his lawyers requested additional time to review his competency. The judge's order gives Thomas, Thomas's attorneys until July 5th to file their motion asking that his competency be reviewed before his execution can proceed. More than 100 faith leaders and others had earlier asked Governor Greg Abbott to stop the execution. I'm thinking that if he went about self-mutilation and hurting himself in that manner, uh, that there, there, there might be something mentally uh, going on you with think? him. You think? And, um, you know, hopefully the proper procedures to go about properly handling this situation with that in mind uh, will go forth and uh, the, the outcome that's needed will happen. That is such a gruesome story to even talk yeah, about. My yeah. goodness. I mean, you got to wonder, though, if the man gouged his eyes out, mm. Right. Why still move forward with an execution? Mm -hmm. you, you, you can't convince me that a man who has gouged his eyes out poses Is in his right mind, poses you know, right. any sort of risk to folks mm -hmm. within the prison, you know, or, you know, or elsewhere. Right. And so uh, I just think it's strange that they're going to move forward or looking to move forward with this execution mm -hmm. when this guy has already severely disabled himself. 
Let's go to California now, where a man who spent 38 years in prison for a 1983 robbery, homicide, and sexual assault he did not commit has had his conviction finally overturned. His name is Maurice Hastings. He was sentenced to life in prison for the abduction, rape, and murder of a woman despite lack of physical evidence. How many times have we heard this? Now, the L.A. Uh, County District Attorney's Office has issued an apology stating that they are, quote, very sorry for the great injustice that my office and the criminal justice system perpetuated upon you. That's the end of that quote. Hastings has expressed his gratitude for the ruling and is participating in an entrepreneurship program and volunteering to help the homeless. Show me, show me, show the, money. me the money. Appreciate <laughs> that apology. That's right. But honey, you know how we do here in America when That's we're right. done wrong. That's right. Money That's right. talks, That's BS right. walks. And, 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 and not just money for him, but money for his family. That's right. You know, I mean, his family, you know, went a very long time without having 83. him in their lives, right? Uh, L.A. County District Attorney, y'all need more than just an apology. Listen, I'm just saying. And they know. They know they better start counting up. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. Well, a high school girls basketball coach in South mm. Georgia has been arrested and charged with sex crimes involving his students. Mm. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation was requested to investigate allegations of inappropriate sexual contact and advances on students by the coach, Coach Derek Harris. Harris has been charged with one count of enticing a child for, for indecent pur purposes, one count of sexual assault by persons with supervisory authority, and one count of sexual battery, and two counts of solicitation of sodomy. The GBI's investigation is ongoing. Harris has uh, was booked in the uh, Mitchell County Jail. Yeah, if if in fact, you know, I know he has to go through, you know, due process, but if in fact he is found guilty, you got to throw him up under, uh, you know, the, the prison. Look, it's it's getting to the point where, you know, you just can't trust your, your our young people with, with, with anyone. I mean, this is a, a basketball coach, a pillar of the community, mm -hmm. uh, someone, you know, that the parents uh, look to, to to be almost parent-like in a sense. You spend a lot of time with coaches mm -hmm. and teammates and things like that, and to be betrayed in that way uh, and for it to be so damning and damaging to those young people who he allegedly uh, may have uh, molested. Uh, it, it, it is heartbreaking, but at the same time, um, if in fact he's found he's guilty, then, then let justice do what it needs to do. And even if you do trust, you got to trust and verify. Mm -hmm. You got to trust and verify. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, who knows how many young people, you know, were impacted by his behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you're right. This kind of behavior it erodes the trust yeah. uh, that so many you know parents have in and mm -hmm. the kids that are coaching the folks that are coaching their kids. All right, hip hop star rise to fame here, uh, Glorilla. Some of you may be familiar with. Uh, she had a concert that turned into a stampede. This happened in Rochester, New York last weekend. Uh, it has unfortunately claimed the life of a third victim. Now, police say the 35-year-old woman died Wednesday night after being hospitalized since Sunday. Two other women died and several were injured after people rushed the doors of the venue thinking they heard gunfire. The city of Rochester refused uh, uh, to uh, the venue's entertainment license yesterday. They're not going to renew that. Uh, yesterday, effectively shutting down uh, while its investigation uh, continues. I mean, you know, just just terrible. I mean, you know, to hear that one person, mm -hmm. you know, was the victim of that stampede and then mm -hmm. two people and now a third person. Yeah, I have a brother who runs, helps run a radio station there. And uh, the, the reports, according to what he was hearing from witnesses there, um, 
Glorilla was actually off the stage. There was some kind of um, confetti that was being released. And, and by the release of this confetti, it sounded like gunshots. Oh, uh, so that started the panic st uh, stampede. And in addition to that, there was some kind of squirmish, some kind of uh, disturbance going on at a door. People were trying to push their way through. Uh, according to the reports from people there, uh, there was some pepper spray that was released that added to the chaos and the confusion with the sound of the confetti. And uh, herein lies the story. It's very unfortunate. I don't think that venue will see the light of day. A lot of folks were saying that it was always uh, viewed as like a, a quote unquote death trap, if you will, uh, in regards to the way it's structured and maybe managed and handled. So just an unfortunate mm. situation. Terrible, terrible. Yeah. Well, a black woman's year-long efforts to diversify country music, hello, are finally being recognized. Nice. Frankie Stanton. Uh, started the Black Country Music Association back in 1997, mm. which showcased black artists and their ability to perform country music. Now, despite recording the performances and getting displays in the Country Music Hall of Fame, Frankie thought her work was forgotten. But now mm. she sees new black artists playing country music and a record label looking to sign more artists of color. Frankie says she stands in the gap for those who never got the chance, and she's excited about what's happening now. Very cool. Listen, there's a whole whole slew of new, young, black, up-and-coming uh, country singers, and it's just really exciting to yeah. see for sure. That's right. Sick of those singers. Coming up, Fantasia joins forces with a life-saving organization to combat a hidden illness affecting millions. That's right. We'll tell you all about how their partnership is making a difference. Stay tuned to Fox Soul's Black Report. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, R&B superstar Fantasia is teaming up with the American Red Cross to help encourage more of us to donate blood. This week, she shared to, to her over 5 million followers on Instagram the importance of giving blood. She even vlogged the entire experience, saying she wanted to spread awareness because of the unique ability many black people have to help patients battling sickle cell disease. One in three American, uh, African-Americans are a match for people with sickle cell. It's great work, great work. You know, I'm, I'm O negative and mm -hmm. I have a rare blood type and you know, American Red Cross, they call me all the time. Do and, so, and so I'm glad I could take a break and Fantasia, you know, could, uh, could handle the job. Yeah, I think I'm A negative, which is a little rare as well. Yeah. Um, I'm a little on the anemia, anemic side, yeah. so I can't really give as much as I'd like to, yeah. but great effort. And I just love to see how her career continues to flourish and she takes it to next levels. All right, the largest insulin manufacturer in the US, Eli Lilly, has capped out of pocket costs for insulin at $35 per month, bringing some relief to some of you soulmates, right? However, structural inequities contribute to poorer health outcomes for black Americans with diabetes. Black Americans have higher rates of diabetes. They struggle to pay for the drug and often get misdiagnosed. Now, the CDC reports that black Americans may be overdiagnosed for pre or type 2 diabetes. Patients may also struggle to afford insulin, leading to rationing and skipped doses. That can't be good. Now, some patients have become advocates for their own health and encourage open conversations between patients and doctors. This is a really big deal for our community. You know, 12% of black folks are living with diabetes. We got sugar. And, we got the sugar. We got the sugar. <laughs> and we know that out-of-pocket costs 
um, have been skyrocketing over recent years. Some people mm -hmm. pay more than $1,000 a month mm -hmm. in out-of-pocket costs just for their insulin. Right. This is medication that they need. And so, you know, Eli Lilly, you know, is, is uh, uh, doing us uh, a bunch of good and saving us a bunch of cash. And I hope there are other drug manufacturers that follow that suit. That will follow suit yeah. as well. Well, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against a Louisiana chemical company in hopes to curb the spread of harmful compounds to black residents in the area. Now, the lawsuit claims that synthetic rubber products made by a company called Deneca Performance in uh, Reserve, Louisiana, is the cause of the problem, and that the factory located in Laplace, Louisiana, presents a cancer risk to the nearby communities, which are majority black. Now, reports show that Dinka has reduced its toxic emissions over time, but recently caught the attention of the EPA late last year. Well, what's taking so long? I mean, this is this is quite obvious. I love your, your water is wet and Miss Sue Ann use it, <laughs> use it the same thing. Look, you know, every time we turn around as black Americans, there's just, there's just threats at, at, at every angle, you know, every degree, and mm -hmm. it can get very exhausting trying to protect and stay aware and stay ahead of the reports and what to do and what not to do. Uh, can we all just live and live healthy? We want the same, you know, healthy, vibrant, uh, living conditions and accessibility that our other fellow Americans have. And I don't know why that continues to, well, I know why, but you know, the, the, the fight of that being, you know, more so of a, of a right than a privilege yeah. is just, it, it, it's tiring. And this is a major environmental justice issue. A um, privilege we, we the know right, that, that the Biden administration has moved on this. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something called Cancer Alley. So from New Orleans mm -hmm. to Baton Rouge, there's this 85-mile mm -hmm. stretch along the Mississippi River, you know, where cancer rates, you know, are uh -huh. elevated. And, you know, guess who lives along that 85-mile uh, stretch, so right? Mates. And so, you know, you know, this is a part of what environmental justice can look like, mm -hmm. calling companies like this out, you know, and, and making them have to correct where they're creating harm. I mean, there's an elementary school, I think, you know, just a few miles away from this facility, mm -hmm. right? And so, so it's okay for, you know, yeah. black kids, you mm -hmm. know, to, to grow up in a neighborhood where we already know they have an elevated risk for cancer, mm -hmm. right? And the company's allowed to continue to make, you know, swimsuits and wetsuits and, mm -hmm. and that's fine. It's a question of humanity. And if they don't care as they should, we just have to continue to push to make them make them care. That's right. All right. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the United States saw its highest ever distribution of white supremacist propaganda last year, jumping 38 mm. percent. Three white supremacist groups, uh, Patriot Front, uh, Goyim Defense League and White Lives Matter, you heard me, were responsible for 93 percent of this year's activity, which includes banners, posters and events. The spikes come as national security leaders have repeatedly warned that white supremacists uh, extremists are are an increasingly large share of the domestic violent extremists in the U.S. You don't say. Right. You know, and, and the, don't take our word for it. <laughs> you know, this the, is the, the FBI director putting it out there. has said that racially motiv motivated uh, extremism poses a significant risk to the United States. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for the folks that, you know, are all about 